exist to see God glorified and disciples multiplied through the power of the gospel. My dad works in the oil and gas industry and back in early 2020, after he had just spent about a month in Southeast Asia, he flew down to Tampa, Florida to come visit me and my wife. My wife, Katie, was just a few months pregnant with our daughter. I was working at a youth pastor and I got a chance. I was going to get to preach in the grown-up service. That Sunday, I was going to preach. So it was like perfect timing. My dad's in town. This is going to be great. Until about a day after he arrived, he started to experience flu-like symptoms. So my dad goes into the doctor Tells the doctor his symptoms. The doctor asks him, Mr. Callan, have you traveled out of the country recently? He says, yes, I just actually got back from Southeast Asia. So the doctor excuses himself, says, I'll just be a minute. About 10, 15, 20 minutes go by until three guys in hazmat suits come back into the office to escort my dad to a COVID test. And this was when there was only one confirmed case of COVID in Tampa, Florida. And they were looking at my dad like this guy's potential case number two. (laughs) So, thankfully, his test result came back negative. But we got to experience lockdown exactly one week before you guys did. Uh, But by the time that we were free from quarantine, the whole country was under quarantine. And I did not get to preach that first week. I also did not get to preach that second week because the second week, the senior pastor, he wanted the mic and I was glad to hand it over to him because I don't know what I would have said. Uh, you know, he was the one that wanted to speak to that moment because I don't know if you remember that first Sunday in lockdown. It was, it was almost like that first Sunday after 9-11 where everyone flooded the churches and filled the churches, except instead of full churches, we had live streams. But it was in that moment that if you had the technological capabilities to stream your service, that there was a moment when every Christian was glued to their computers or their TVs or their phones to see what their pastors were going to say about COVID. And you may have had a different experience, but I remember my pastor preached on trusting in God and not being afraid of the virus. And it was a good message. It was an encouraging message in scary times. And that's what I saw most pastors preaching on. Hey, God is in control, don't worry. Like, trust in him no matter the circumstance. And that's a good message. But knowing what I know now, that's not at all what I would preach on if I had been given the mic. Because what we didn't realize was that the greatest threat we were going to face during the pandemic would not be the virus, would not be the government mandates, but unity within the church. My church in Florida... Y'all know Florida. Florida pretended like COVID did not exist. There were no mandates. We could do whatever we wanted. I was a youth pastor who went in one day a week, and I was an essential worker. So, sure. Um, It was not an issue. Nobody in our church died from the virus. Some people get sick. It was worrisome. It was uh, a little bit of a trial. But it wasn't nearly as bad as we all thought it was going to be. But by the end of the pandemic, we had lost 40% of our people. Some of them feels like it was a good excuse. Hey, let me stay home. It's in a pandemic and then they never return. Some of them left because they were worried about the virus. They were immunocompromised. They, they didn't feel comfortable even in a situation where there was the strictest uh, precautions. But many left because of the intense fighting that took place about masks and vaccines and mandates. 
And many of you know it was not just my church, but thousands and thousands of churches out there. And it was during COVID that we saw a great reshuffling of the saints that, that men and women who had been dedicated to local churches, the same local church for 20 plus years, suddenly gone and at a new church. I know pastors who have been serving 10, 20 years. After COVID, they threw in the towel. And they're still faithful Christians, but they just said, it has been too much. I am burnt out. I need to take a step, from past, a step down from pastoral ministry. It's actually some people are labeling this past year as the great resignation because we've seen so many pastors who were, hey, I'm going to sail the ship through COVID. I'm going to get us through this trial. But as soon as there's light at the end of the tunnel, I need to step down because it was, it was tough. It's a tough time. And if you've been part of the church for long, you know that peace and unity within the church, it is difficult to maintain even in the good years. Amen. It's hard to be in a group of people who still have their sinful flesh. Even if we're redeemed, filled with the Spirit, we are going to sin against one another. And so that makes it difficult to do life in a community where you're supposed to be committed to one another. In the words of C.S. Lewis, forgiveness is a lovely thing until someone has something to forgive. So if I could jump back into a time machine and preach that first message on that first Sunday of lockdown. I think I'd preach on Ephesians chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. If you're using a pew Bible, Ephesians 1 is on page 1,159. If you're turning in your phone, we use the English Standard Version, so if you just want to keep along with that. Uh, And let me tell you, as you're turning, Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians while the church in Ephesus was facing a deep racial divide between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. So last week in verses 1 through 7, we read that Paul began to combat this deep divide in the church, not by talking about racism or inequality or equality or even brotherly love. Those would have been good places to begin. But Paul, writing to both Jewish and Gentile believers, begins this letter by listing all of the ways we have been blessed by God the Father in Christ. So my prayer this morning is that as we reflect on the blessings we received in Christ, that we would be led into both a deeper worship of God and a greater unity with one another. Because in Ephesians 1, we're going to find three ways that we've been blessed in Christ. Three ways we've been blessed in Christ. That's right. I am changing the points from last week, and there is nothing you can do to stop me. They're better points, so I changed them. Last week, we covered verses 1 through 6. And after we pray, I do want to review quickly and go through some of those verses. And when we do that, we'll see that the first, blessings, uh, the first blessing of Ephesians 1 is that the Father chose us for adoption. Second, in verses 7 through 10, we'll see that the Son redeemed us for unity. And third, in verses 10 through 14, the Spirit sealed us for an inheritance. The Father chose us for adoption, the Son redeemed us for unity, and the Spirit sealed us for an inheritance. And on that note, let's pray. Let's dive into this glorious passage. Sovereign Lord, you are good in all your ways, even in the ways that do not feel good, even in the ways that are offensive to our flesh. Help us to believe that truth and to trust your word as we seek to submit our lives to it. By the power of your Holy Spirit, as I preach, 
May the sermon that is heard be far better than the one delivered. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Look at me starting in verse 3. We'll read verses 3 through 6 to do a little review. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Stop there. The great irony of these verses is that Paul wrote them to unite the church, and they have also been a source of deep division within the church, because these verses clearly speak to the issue of election. The word election isn't used in this chapter, but it, the concept of here is, is used all throughout the Bible. And it's not a word we typically use unless we're talking about the thing that happens every four years where we get together and we cast our ballots and we elect a president in a presidential election. So to elect someone simply means to choose them. And God's elect people are all the people past, present, and future who are believers whom God has chosen. And let me say something. Every Christian believes in election and predestination. That is not a debate. These are biblical words. We should not be afraid of them. The part we tend to disagree on is why did God elect some and not others? Why did God choose some and not others? What does it mean that God predestined people? Because obviously not everyone goes to heaven. If God chose everyone, everyone would go. Jesus said, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. All that will be drawn will be raised on the last day. So why did God choose some and not others? What is the basis of God's election? Some people would say, hey, God knows the future. So he looked down the corridors of time. He saw all the ones who were going to believe when they were offered the grace of God. And he chose them because they chose him in the future. So God's election is based off future faith. That's one view. The other view, which is the view that I argued for last week, is that we are dead in our sins. And if God looked down into the future without his grace, without predestining anyone, no one would have believed because without God, we're dead in our sins. Dead people don't believe. It'd be like standing at the tomb of Lazarus saying, Lazarus, as soon as you come out, I'll raise you from the dead. No, Jesus had to call first. The view that I argued for last week in detail is that God chose to save a group of sinners from before the foundation of the world, not based upon works, not based even on the basis of faith, but based totally and completely upon his unconditional grace that in love he predestined them to become adopted into God's family. And it's at this point, some of y'all are thinking, yeah, what time was mountainside service? Is that later? Can we still go there? Now, You don't have to agree with what I just said to be here. If you don't agree, God bless you. You're welcome here. You can even be a member of this church and not agree with what I just said. I'm not sure most of the members of this church agree with what I just said. (laughs) But no matter what you believe upon election, whether it's conditional election or unconditional election, don't miss the beauty of what Paul is saying here in verses three through six. Do not get distracted by the debate and miss the point of Paul's argument. 
The whole reason that Paul brought up predestination in the first place was because Paul wanted to tell both Jewish believers and Gentile believers is that both of you are chosen before the foundation of the world to be a part of the same family. You have the same father in heaven. And so think about this. <laughs> Thank you, Frankie. I love it. Talk back to me. I love it. It's encouraging. So think about this. Even if you disagree with your brother or sister in Christ about why God chose the elect, why God chose you two believers, the point here is that there is a bond that exists between you two that predates Genesis 1. That if you look around at the other Christians in this room, God decided to make us a family before the world began. And that's why last week we saw that God chose us for adoption. And let me say, if you have questions and disagreements, I'd always be honored to sit down with open Bibles and in the spirit of brotherly love, talk more about the subject. I answered a lot of the questions last week. Sorry, y'all are coming here on week two and I'm just dropping a bomb on you and letting it blow up. Well, let's move on to the second blessing of Ephesians 1, the redemption of the son. Look at me to verse seven. In him... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Stop there. In order for God to bring his chosen people, his elect, into his kingdom, in order for God to make his people holy and blameless, he needed to buy them. He must redeem them. To redeem someone means to buy them back, to pay a price. In ancient times, it's usually referred to slaves being bought back. You want to redeem someone who was sold in slavery, you must pay the price. And that's why when God saved the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, it is often said that he redeemed Israel. That when God sent plague after plague after plague into Egypt and commanded Pharaoh through Moses, let my people go Pharaoh still refused. So God sent one final plague, one tenth plague, where God was going to take the life of every firstborn in every household, both human and animal. But God also said that whoever would take a spotless, blameless lamb and slaughter it, take a brush, put the blood on the side of the doorpost and over the top of the door frame. If you put that blood and then you eat that lamb and you cook it and you eat it, that night, as God struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, he passed over all who had the blood over their doors. So the firstborn of Egypt was struck down and the firstborn of Israel was spared. And now it's interesting, for every other plague that was experienced in Egypt, Israel had to do nothing to escape the effects of the plague. It's even when there's darkness over Egypt, they couldn't see anything, and Israel's over here in their slave quarters, and they're fine. They can see perfectly. All the plagues affected the Egyptians, but finally on this 10th plague, God required a sacrifice. Why? Why did God require a sacrifice for this final plague? Because God was communicating both to Egypt and to Israel that you deserve death. What God did in the 10th plague was justice. And so why was Israel spared? Because a blameless life was substituted 
for every household, a spotless lamb. So in the New Testament, when Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free, the Pharisees, they're offended because they're like, we were freed from Egypt. We've never been enslaved to everyone. How can you say that you will become free? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. You're in bondage to sin. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And what is the price that sin demands? Death. The wages of sin is death. But praise God, that is not the end of the verse. What does Romans 6.23 say? Somebody. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen, somebody. Paul could write, Romans 6.23, because in the New Testament, we meet a blameless man, a man without sin, the only man who had ever lived and did not deserve death. And when he walks on the scene, John the Baptist points at him and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And on the night of the Passover, Jesus lifts up his cup and he said, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And then as the true good shepherd, Jesus laid down his life for the sheep. But not only did he lay it down, but three days later, he raised it back up again. Because by his death, burial, and resurrection, Christ has redeemed us through his blood and forgiven us our trespasses. Or in other words, forgiven us our sins. This is the gospel. This is what we believe. And the most mind-blowing thing to me in this verse is that he did it not because we deserved it, not because we earned it, not because one day we would be righteous enough to merit our own redemption, but according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. There is nothing you can do to wash away a single sin you've ever committed. There are no good deeds, no good works, Nothing you can offer in order to redeem yourself. But the blood of God the Son. That is the only basis by which anyone can make it to heaven. And it's only received by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And that's what we find in verses 7 through 8. Amen? Amen. Now look with me to verse 9. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. When Adam and Eve sinned against God and rebelled against him in the garden, have you ever wondered why Jesus didn't just come then? Like, wouldn't it be great? Genesis 4, we read, and Eve gave birth to a son and his name was Jesus. Why was that not the plan? Why did it take God thousands and thousands of years to send his son into the world? Because in all of God's wisdom and insight, the plan was to send Christ in the fullness of time. At the exact right moment to redeem his people. And the whole Old Testament, listen to me, is leading up to this moment. In just one example of the Passover, you see one of the beautiful images of the Old Testament saying, we need this, but better 
We need a spiritual Passover. We need spiritual liberation. And we need a lamb's blood who is better than the lamb we just sacrificed. The whole Old Testament is pointing forward to this moment where Jesus redeemed sinners to himself. And if you look carefully enough in the Old Testament, there are shadows of Jesus everywhere. But in the New Testament, we don't find just a shadow. We get the whole picture. We get the mystery of his will revealed in the gospel. We get the full plan. And notice at the end of verse 10 what this plan accomplishes. The unity of all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. Now, some people have taken this to mean everyone's going to heaven. Got a good friend. Love him to death. But he mentioned to me, hey, I listened to your sermon last week. And I was like, oh, that's interesting because my friend is a universalist and believes that all people, believer and unbeliever, will one day make it to heaven. And so I said, what did, what did you think about predestination? He said, oh, I didn't, it, I, I agree with all of it. God predestines everyone. And so everyone will make it to heaven because God chooses all. Because look at verse 10. Verse 10 says he unites all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. And I had to think about that for a second. I was like, oh, that's interesting. But the thing about verse 10, first off, in the original Greek, this is actually what it says, is that all things will be united. Um, that, 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 ooh, where, did you, where did I put it? <laughs> there you go. Is that all things, not even things, Verse 10 reads this literally, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all in him, in heaven and on earth. Every time you see the word things, that is not in the original language that is supplied by the translator to try to make it much more easier to read. So if we have this all in him, it's not saying one day unbelievers will make it, but it's all who are in Christ, all who have been united to Christ by faith. That's the whole thrust of this entire passage. You see that phrase, in him, in Christ, in the beloved, over and over and over again from verses 3 through 14. This verse isn't saying that all things believer and non-believer will be united, but all things in Christ are united, which once again gets to the heart of why Paul wrote this letter. Paul is reminding the Ephesians, hey, not only has God chosen the Jew, but also the Gentile from before the foundation of the world to bring all together by the blood of the son. If you go back to Genesis 12, where God promised Abram, hey, I'm going to pick you. You are my chosen servant and I'm going to bless you. All those who bless you will be blessed. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you descendants as much as the sand on the seashore and as much as the stars in the sky. But then it ends and through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God's plan to redeem and to save and to bless Israel was never meant to conclude with Israel, but it was meant to extend to every tribe, tongue, people, and nation to bless all the families in the world. And if we could hold this truth near to our hearts that Christ did not just redeem you for yourself, but he redeemed you to be united with your brothers and sisters in Christ, then that is a powerful motivator in the face of intense division. But there is one more blessing that we as believers have in Christ. And that's that God the Spirit sealed us for an inheritance. Look to verse 11. 
in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. On top of all the blessings that we have in Christ, we have now obtained an inheritance. What's the inheritance that Paul's talking about? Well, I think it's the same inheritance that Peter talked about in 1 Peter 1 when he wrote, we have an inheritance that is imperishable, uncorrupted, unfading, kept in heaven for you. And if you are a believer, you have obtained the inheritance of heaven. And though you and I have not yet acquired possession of it, verse 14 says that inheritance is guaranteed. How do we obtain this inheritance? Well, it depends on how you look at it. From God's perspective, he predestined us to receive this inheritance according to the counsel of his will. According to our perspective, when we heard the word of truth and when we believed the gospel and we chose to follow Jesus, we received the spirit as the guarantee of our inheritance. And once again, we see both God's sovereignty and man's responsibility in the same sentence. Ephesians 1 is a sentence that only God could write. In the words of John MacArthur, how do I reconcile God's sovereignty with man's responsibility? That's God's problem. And for God, it's not a problem. I think no matter where we end up in the predestination debate, we all need to humbly admit that there is glorious mystery in this passage on how these two truths work together. And the way that we navigate that is not by rejecting one or the other, but by rejecting both. Or not, not by rejecting both, by accepting both. That really just pulled the air out of that point. <laughs> Do not reject both. I don't even know what that would look like. Back to verse 13. In the ancient world, a seal was a mark of ownership and protection. In Rome, the seal of someone's house was often branded on livestock and on slaves. So if you were a Roman slave, you'd walk around for the rest of your life with this mark, with this seal, and it communicated, my master is X, I belong to Y. And so for the Holy Spirit to seal God's adopted children, the seal of the Spirit is like our born-again birthmark. Not material, but permanent. The seal of the Spirit designates that we belong to God permanently. And you should notice in these verses, not a single soul is lost from verse 3 to verse 14. All who are chosen are redeemed. And all who are redeemed are sealed. And all who are sealed are guaranteed this inheritance. See that in verse 14? Paul tells us that the fact that the Holy Spirit dwells within you is a guarantee that he will sustain you to the end. That he will hold you fast. That no power of hell or scheme of man can ever pluck you from his hand. That he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion. For that soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, he'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Amen, somebody. This is exactly what Paul told us in Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who shall bring a charge against God's chosen? For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen. Once again, just think about this last couple verses and what it would mean for both Jewish believers and Gentile believers. Wait a minute. You mean we both receive the same inheritance? I'm a Gentile. I'm a dog. I'm an unnatural branch. I don't deserve the riches. I just want the crumbs that are falling from the table. And you're saying, I get that inheritance? Are you kidding me? And now think about the people sitting around you. That we have a bond that goes all the way into eternity past and into eternity future. Remember my prayer this morning was that as we reflected on all the blessings we've received in Christ, that we would be led into both a deeper worship of God and a greater unity with one another. Because in Ephesians 1, we found that the Father chose us for adoption. The Son redeemed us for unity and the Spirit has sealed us for an inheritance. So let me ask you, if you're a Christian and you think about how you got saved, who normally gets the credit? Well, I think we'd all agree. Like, hopefully you'd say, yeah, Jesus died for me. He'd redeem me. But when you think about it, okay, okay. But I followed Jesus. It was because I was more spiritual. I was more righteous. I was more intelligent. And yeah, Jesus saved me, but I'm the one who's keeping my way. I'm the one who's working all things out. Because let me tell you that. Let me tell you something. I, um, let me confess this. I know that if it were not for the grace of God, I would have never followed Jesus. And if he did not hold me in his hand this moment, if I could lose my salvation, I would. I would. That's a humbling thought. But I know it's true and I'm thankful that the hands I rest in are sovereign and good and loving and all powerful and I trust him and him alone to carry me to that end so that I may receive that inheritance, not by my works, but by grace. So what are you trusting in this morning? What is your hope in? And even in the context of Ephesians, when you bicker and fight with other believers, are you tempted to forget these truths? Are you so focused on the here and now that you've missed the big picture of how God is united all in Christ? Well, this morning, I have three pastoral charges. I have three ways that we can apply these truths to our lives. And love both God and one another greater. First pastoral charge. Bless the triune God. Bless the triune God. To bless God means simply to praise him. And that's how Paul began this whole sentence in verse 3. Remember, this whole passage from verse 3 to 14 is one long, crazy, run-on sentence. Beginning and ending with praise. That Paul begins his thought by declaring, Blessed be God the Father. And he ends in verse 14 to the praise of his glorious grace. So let me say this. 
If the doctrine of predestination leads you to argue more than to worship, then you do not understand predestination like Paul did. The overflow of this passion is pure and unadulterated worship and praise of the triune God of the Bible. And if that is not your reaction to reading Ephesians 1, then stare at this passage and pray over this passage and meditate over this passage until you get there. Because Paul's words here are nothing short of spirit-inspired euphoria and worship. Second pastoral charge. Seek unity in Christ. Seek unity in Christ. I realize that I've said a lot of controversial things in the sermon that could lead to a lot of divisions. I hope you know I'm not trying to be controversial. not trying to be divisive. We at Horgan Baptist Church, we believe in what's called expositional preaching. I didn't really choose this passage. I chose the book of Ephesians and we're hitting every passage as we go along. So we're not talking about this next week. I don't know what we're talking about next week. I got to figure that out. I got to go in my study and figure out what does the end of chapter one teach us. And whatever the text says, that is what the sermon is on. The goal here is not to be controversial or divisive. I'm just trying to say what I believe Paul is communicating. But even if you disagree with my conclusions about what Paul is saying, I think it is obvious that Paul did not believe that what he was saying was controversial. I think it's obvious that Paul assumes the ideas of predestination and election so solidly that he expected not a single controversy from this chapter. Because he was using these concepts that were so assumed in the early church that he expected it to result in unity in a racially divided church. So let me also say this. If the doctrine of predestination leads you to argue with your brother more than to love your brother, then you do not understand predestination like Paul did. Can you put aside your partisan blinders and love someone of the opposite political party as long as you have Ephesians 1 in common? Can you love a brother or sister of a different age, different race, different country, different language? Can you love the Calvinist? Can you love the Arminian? If you don't know what a Calvinist or an Arminian is, can you love those obnoxious theology nerds like me? If you're a local, can you love those who are not? Can you even love students from word of life? And if you're here from the BI, can you be unified with these crazy backwoods Adirondacks, Adirondackers if all you have in common with them is Ephesians chapter 1 and the promises that God the Father has bestowed upon you? And I think if we understand this passage like Paul did, our answer must be yes. Third pastoral charge. Be united with Christ through faith. Be united with Christ through faith. The only way to access any of the blessings of heaven is by being united with Christ, by being in him. And if you repent of your sin and put your faith alone in his sacrifice, then by the power of the Spirit, you'll be united to Christ so that all your sins have been nailed to the cross. And all of the righteous deeds of Jesus, they are now yours. A righteousness not of yourself. And his inheritance is your inheritance. And let me say, the fact that God is sovereign does not negate one ounce of human responsibility for our sin. Like people have thought, if God's in control, how can he really hold us accountable? And Paul even brings this up in Romans 9. He says, you will say to me then, why does God still find fault? For who can resist his will? 
And this is Paul's answer to that question. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? On the day of judgment, no one will be able to go to God and say, I wasn't responsible because you were in control. So none of my sins count. Every one of us freely chooses every evil act we do. And one day we will all be held accountable for it. And that will be a terrible day for those who are not in Christ. But the good news is that today, if you will not harden your heart, but will humble yourself, if you will turn from your sin and put your faith in Christ, the true and better Passover lamb, then you can be redeemed by his blood. And all of his sins, all of your sins washed away. Not based upon your works, not based upon your righteousness. It's not even believing. It's not like, hey, you believe. That's such a good thing you did. Now you're righteous. No, it's only through faith that we have access to the riches of Christ. Based purely upon the blood of Christ, according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon whosoever will come to him through faith. Let me conclude with an illustration Uh, This quote from Dr. D.A. Carson, he says this, picture two Jews by the name of Smith and Brown, remarkably Jewish names, the day before the first Passover, having a little discussion in the land of Goshen, and Smith says to Brown, boy, are you a little nervous about what's going to happen tonight? Brown says, well, God has told us what to do through his servant Moses. You don't have to be nervous. Haven't you slaughtered the lamb and daubed the two doorposts with blood and put blood on the lintel? Haven't you done that? Are you, all, are you ready and packed? And are you ready to go? Are you going to eat the whole Passover meal with your family? Well, of course I've done that. I'm not stupid. But it's still pretty scary thinking about all the things that have happened recently. You know, flies and river turning to blood. Pretty awful. And now this, there's this threat of the firstborn being killed, you know? It's all right for you. You have three sons. I only have one. I love my Charlie. And the angel of death is passing through tonight, you know. I know what God says, and I put the blood there, but it's pretty scary. I'll be glad when this night is over. And the other responds, bring it on. I trust in the promises of God. That night, the destroyer, the spirit of death, swept through the land. Which one lost his son? And the answer, of course, is neither. Because death does not pass over them on the grounds of the intensity or the clarity of the faith exercise, but on the grounds of the blood of the Lamb. Amen? And as long as our faith is in the one who has redeemed us by his blood, then we shall receive that inheritance. And all the people said, Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, in love, you chose us before the foundation of the world. You have lavished your grace upon us in Christ, and you have set your seal upon us by your Spirit. And we will forever be grateful for your sovereign grace in our lives. We pray that if anyone here has not chosen to follow Jesus, that you would do a miracle in their hearts. Lord, we know that it is your power and plan to redeem sinners to yourself. So may we be part of that plan right now. And as we leave, may we seek to live out these truths within your church. 
as we seek to love one another as Christ has loved us. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Hi, Taylor Callen, pastor of Oregon Baptist Church. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon. I pray that you are more encouraged and love Jesus and the gospel more after hearing the sermon than when you first sat down to listen to it. Know that that our heart at this church is that this sermon would be an encouragement to you and would be a useful resource, but would in no way replace the pastor that God has called to shepherd you or the church that you're called to be a member of. With that being said, if you want more information about our church or want to hear more sermons, go to horicanbaptist.com.